0: Uh, One of my go to books during this uh, series has been Chuck Swindoll's great book called Paul, a man of grace and grit. And as I was reading through uh, the next chapter in that book, chapter 10 this past week, I, I came across a missionary that Chuck Swindoll was talking about, a missionary I'd never heard of. His name is James Gilmore. James Gilmore was born in the mid part of the 19th century. He was born in 1843. He was a Scottish born Christian. And at a young age, he felt God's call upon his life to go on to the mission field. His mom was very missions minded. She carved out an hour of time every night to teach her kids about the word of God. And at a young age, Matthew twenty-eight nineteen through 20 was impressed on his mind and heart where Jesus, before he went to heaven, gave this great commission to his followers. He said, I want you to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And so this young boy, James Gilmore, uh, took that to heart and he came to the conclusion that he could not be obedient to God's call on his life. If he were to stay at home, he believed he must go overseas. At a young age, he came to the conclusion. He said this to me, the soul of an Indian seems as precious as the soul of an Englishman. And the gospel is much for the Chinese as for the European." So after graduating from college, uh, he was thrilled to be accepted into the London Missionary Society and go to seminary to prepare to be an overseas missionary. And at the age of 26, his dream came true. He was sent to Beijing, China. Within a few months, he was given the opportunity to be a pioneer missionary up north in the area of Mongolia that at that time was just north of China. And so he went to Mongolia and off and on for the next 21 years, he served as a missionary there in Mongolia. Well, sh- shortly after arriving in Mongolia, uh, Gilmore wrote these words in his journal. He said several huts in sight. When shall I be able to speak to the people, O Lord? Suggest by the spirit how I should come among them and in preparing myself to teach the life and the love Of Christ Jesus. You could just hear the excitement as he wrote in his journal. He was so excited to lead these people to Jesus Christ. Well, fast forward about four years. During that time, he learned the Mongolian language. He built relationships. He preached the gospel to all who would listen. And what do you think happened in those next four years? Thousands of Mongolians came to Christ, maybe. Perhaps he planted not one or two, but maybe four or five churches. Perhaps a great revival broke out in Mongolia. Not exactly. Here's what he wrote four years later. He wrote in his diary, In the shape of converts, I have seen no result. I have not, as far as I am aware, seen anyone who even wanted to become a Christian. And that just kind of makes your heart drop, doesn't it? Four years pouring his blood, sweat and tears into his Mongolian mission. And he didn't even get a glimpse of anyone drawing any closer to Jesus Christ. Around the same time, Gilmore married his wife, Emily. She was a great partner in ministry, but she died of some strange disease before they reached their 11th anniversary. Just a few years later, Gilmore himself died of typhus fever, just a few weeks shy of his 48th birthday. The world looks at James Gilmore's life and they say, what a waste. He was an abject failure in his mission to Mongolia. But God looks at James Gilmore's life and says, well done, good and faithful servant. Amen. We would like to think that good ministry is as easy as a walk in the park and always leads to thousands of lives being transformed by the power of the gospel. But the truth is, more times than not, listen to this, more times than not, Christians who pour their blood, sweat and tears into their God-given ministries find it to be a very, very bumpy road. And oftentimes the results aren't nearly as monumental or glamorous as we had imagined. Even the great Apostle Paul discovered this to be true. So if you're serious about doing great ministry, carrying out God's purpose for your life, bringing heaven to your corner of the world, you'd better buckle in and brace yourself because it's going to be, in all likelihood, a pretty bumpy ride. Well, remember what happened in the first three verses of Acts chapter 13. We're going to dive in in just a few moments to verse 4 of Acts 13. But in the first three verses, we looked at this two weeks ago, uh, we saw that there were five key leaders who led that church in Antioch of Syria. Two of those five leaders were none other than Barnabas and Saul. And the Holy Spirit, as the leadership was fasting and worshiping God, one day the Holy Spirit set apart, Barnabas and Saul. And he told those leaders, set apart for me these two men to the work to which I will call them. And after gathering the church together for a season of fasting and prayer, they laid hands on Barnabas and Saul and they sent them off. Antioch Christian Church was losing two fifths of its leadership team. But as heart wrenching as that must have been for the church members, they were okay with it. Because it was God's will. Now let's pick up in verse 4 here in Acts chapter 13. The two of them, Barnabas and Saul, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. They traveled through the whole region until they came to Paphos, the whole island, I should say, until they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them. And he tried to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elimus and said, You are a child of the devil, and you are an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now, the hand of the Lord is going to be against you. You're going to be blind. And for a time, you will be unable to see the light of the sun. Immediately, mist and darkness came over him, and he groped about, seeking uh, someone to, to lead him by the hand. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. May God bless us as we read and study his word together today. Well, having been chosen and set apart by the Holy Spirit... Barnabas and Saul set out on the adventure of a lifetime to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ throughout Northwest Asia. These guys had been set apart by God. They knew that God had told them to do it. And they must have been thrilled beyond being able to put it into words. And their first step was going to be to go to to Barnabas's hometown. Or if not his hometown, at least his home nation, the island of Cyprus. And so that was going to be the first stop on their mission trip. Barnabas and Saul began their journey by traveling most likely on foot just a few miles west to the nearest port city. The port city of Seleucia, Luke tells us there in verse four, where they could board a cargo ship headed for Cyprus. So they boarded a ship and they took the one hundred and thirty mile boat ride to the east side of the island of Cyprus. And Luke tells us in verse five that John was with him as their helper. Now, this was John Mark. Remember who he was? He was Barnabas's cousin. And so Barnabas and Saul, they had gone to take some financial relief Uh, to those Christians in and around Jerusalem. And when they were down there giving that financial relief to the Christians and the churches down there, remember Barnabas ran into his nephew or his cousin uh, uh, Mark, John Mark, and he brought him back to Antioch with him. And so evidently they had had a conversation with John Mark, convinced him to join them as their helper on this first missionary journey. Uh, Luke doesn't tell us what kind of helper Mark was. Some think that maybe he also uh, preached and taught the word of God. But the word that's used here is is pretty broad. My best guess is he was a more of uh, a carry the luggage and cook the meals kind of helper. (laughs) He most likely wasn't preaching. He was just a young man, pretty new to his faith. But he was a big help for them in the early weeks of their missionary journey. According to verse five, Barnabas and Saul's ship came into port at Salamis. Uh, if you look at this map of Cyprus, you can see Salamis is over here on the east coast. So they were coming from the mainland over here, uh, just north of Israel. And so they took that boat ride over to Salamis. Salamis was a very important city in those days. Cyprus was uh, an island famous for its copper mines and its shipbuilding industry. And Salamis was the commercial center for the whole island but particularly the east side of that island. Here's something interesting that I learned last week about Cyprus. I didn't know this before. The Greeks nicknamed the island of Cyprus Hemakaria, translation, the Happy Isle. Isn't that sweet? The Happy Island. Now, why would they nickname Cyprus the Happy Island? Well, for starters, it had gorgeous views like this on its coastline. And so the Greeks believed that the island of Cyprus was one of the most perfect places on earth to live. It was not only beautiful, it also had every resource that any man would ever need to be happy. And it had some of the most perfect weather in all the Mediterranean. And so they called it the happy isle because you could live there for the rest of your life and be so, so happy, they believed. Well, once in a while... We hear someone moving uh, Hear someone moving to Hawaii to to do ministry. And when that happens, sometimes we find ourselves saying, well, it's a tough job, but someone has to do it. Right. Doing ministry in, in paradise. Well, it's tough, but you know what? Someone's got to do it. That's maybe what people thought of Paul and Barnabas going to Cyprus. Uh, you know what? If you're going to start a missionary journey, you might as well start in paradise. Right. You might as well start on Fantasy Island. You might as well start on the Happy Isle. Well, they went to Salamis and uh, Luke gives us here in in Acts 13, verse 5, just the briefest of summaries of what they did in the city of Salamis. He simply writes, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. And that's it. That's all Luke tells us. A synagogues is plural. So we know there was more than one where Paul and Barnabas had ministered. But they evidently went in these synagogues. They preached the word of God. They shared the gospel. And we would assume, like in the other cities where these two missionaries went, that people turned to Christ. They turned from Judaism to Christianity. Uh, We would think that Saul and, and Barnabas planted a church there in that city. But we're not told that for sure. All we know is they preached there in the synagogues. Well, we can't be certain, but it seems that after they left that city, they traveled through the whole island, uh, speaking the word of God along the way, and eventually, according to verse 6, they get to the west side of the island, the city of Paphos. So we look at this map again Paphos is over on the south side of the island. They went from Salamis, 90 miles west over to Paphos. And so along the way, they most likely preach the gospel through the island and they get to Paphos and Luke, the writer of Acts, focuses in on on one person who converts to Christianity. He focuses on a man named Sergius Paulus. He was the proconsul of Paphos. In other words, he was the governor of that region where Paphos was the capital city. Paphos, you see, was not just the capital city of that region, it was actually the capital of the island. And so Saul must have thought it was strategic to share the the word of God, to share the gospel in that strategic city. Verse seven, Sergius Paulus is described as an intelligent man who sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. Down in verse 12. Sergius Paulus believes the good news of Jesus Christ. He becomes a Christian, but not before his chief advisor has something to say about it. His chief advisor is a Jewish sorcerer named Bar-Jesus. Bar-Jesus, kind of a weird name. Now, you remember when we talked first about Barnabas a couple months back. Remember that prefix bar in Greek means son of. So Barnabas means son of encouragement. Bar-Jonah translates to son of Jonah. So Bar-Jesus translates as son of Jesus. Now, what does Jesus mean? Remember, Jesus' name in Hebrew is Joshua. Sometimes we pronounce it Yeshua. That name, Joshua, Yeshua, Jesus, literally means the Lord Yahweh saves. And so catch this. This Jewish sorcerer, is named son of the Lord who saves. Hmm. He's also called Elimus, which means, as we say on the screen here, the skillful one or the wise man. So imagine the audacity of this guy strutting around like a peacock. Someone asks him, what's your name? My name is the son of salvation. But, you know, my friends, those that know me well, Uh, They just call me the wise one. Uh, They call me the the super intelligent, uh, 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 the skillful one. So you can do that, too. You don't have to call me the son of salvation. Just call me the skillful one. This guy probably had an ego that didn't quit. Both names. Both names. Very egotistical at first, possibly even being downright slanderous or blasphemous. Well, he was called out here as a Jewish sorcerer, but we know all sorcery is satanic in origin. So he's practicing satanic sorcery. Bar Jesus was not interested in hearing Saul's sermons, was he? That's clear from what Luke tells us here. He's not interested in hearing his sermons, and he knew that Saul's preaching could negatively impact his own job security. Because he's personal advisor uh, to the proconsul. He's 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 personal advisor to him. He's a consultant to him. And so he knows if his boss converts to Christianity and Christianity clearly stands strong against any form of satanic sorcery, then he will likely himself be out of a job. And so he thinks he has a vested interest in getting Saul and Barnabas to shut up and go away. And so he comes against them fiercely. He speaks out against the gospel. He speaks out against Saul and Barnabas. In all likelihood, he's speaking out against Jesus himself. Notice what it says in verses 9 through 11. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at elements and said, You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You're going to be blind, and for a time you'll be unable to see the light of the sun. Immediately, it says, mist and darkness came over him, and he groped about seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Now, there are a few important details that I don't want you to miss in these verses. First of all, this is the first time Luke mentions Saul's Greek name, Paul. He says here, Saul, who was also called Paul. Once he says that, from this point forward, Paul will never be called Saul again in the book of Acts. As he's beginning his first missionary journey to reach not only Jews, but Gentiles with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Saul starts going by his Greek name, Paul, and he doesn't go back. That's the first thing I want you to notice. He's never called Saul again in the book of Acts. Number two, I don't want you to miss the similarity between what Bar-Jesus did in verse six and what Saul of Tarsus had done 12 years earlier. Remember on the road to Damascus, what Jesus said to him? When he came to him in blinding light, he said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Saul had violently opposed Christians and had tried to turn them from their faith and try to convince them to blaspheme Jesus. Isn't that exactly what Bar Jesus is doing here in Acts chapter 13? He's doing much the same thing. And and the, the punishment in a sense that Saul got, the initial punishment, remember he was blind and couldn't see for three days. Bar Jesus, Elemas, receives the same punishment. He goes blind because of his blasphemy, because he was cursing God's followers and trying to dissuade people from accepting Christ. It's pretty remarkable, I think, pretty miraculous. All that to say this, whether someone is a devout Jew or a pagan sorcerer, When he or she claims to represent God, but opposes Jesus Christ and Christ's followers, he or she is acting like a child of the devil and needs to be told so either by Jesus Christ directly or by one of his followers. Barnabas and Saul did some good, good ministry on that happy island, but it didn't come easily, did it? It didn't come easy. They had to deal with a a fair amount of pushback, pushback that seems to have made a a big impact on both Paul and John Mark. By the time they leave that island of Cyprus, my guess is there were at least dozens of followers of Jesus Christ and hopefully a a few new churches that had been planted in these strategic cities that Luke mentioned. One strategic city on the West Coast, one on the East Coast. But we don't know for sure, Luke tells us so very little about that ministry to Cyprus. But one thing that we can know for sure as we get to these next several verses is that that ministry on Cyprus took a toll. Once again, it took a toll particularly on Paul and on John Mark. Look with me at the next couple verses, verses 13 and 14 here in Acts 13. From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia. Where John Mark left them to return to Jerusalem from Perga, they went on to Pisidian Antioch on the Sabbath. They entered the synagogue and they sat down. We'll go ahead and stop there. I just want us to focus for a few minutes on those two verses, verses 13 and 14. After finishing their missionary endeavors on the island of Cyprus, which was Barnabas's home island. They went to the mainland in Asia Minor, which was more of Saul's or Paul's home turf. And so those three missionaries, Paul and Barnabas and John Mark, they all arrive on the mainland there in Asia Minor in this mainland city of Perga in Pamphylia. Now, on the map, I'll show you kind of quickly what happened during this journey so far. They left Antioch and Syria Traveled, remember, to Salamis on the east coast of Cyprus. They went all the way across the island to Paphos on the west coast of Cyprus and then traveled some 200 miles or so northwest to the mainland there in that city of Perga. Now, Perga was somewhere between eight to 11 miles inland, depending on which port they landed at when they hit the mainland. And so they go to this city of Perga. Notice what it says happens there in Perga. Notice that First of all, in verse 13, Paul, for the first time, is listed first. OK, up until this point, it's always been Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul. Even a few verses earlier, God had said, set apart for me. Barnabas and Saul for, to the work to which I will call them now for the first time. Not only is Saul called Paul, but now he's listed first. And in this particular verse. Verse 13, Barnabas isn't even mentioned by name. He's just one of Paul's companions. And so there's this big shift that takes place here as Paul hits the mainland. Now it's not Paul as the tag along with Barnabas as the leader. Now Barnabas takes a secondary position to Paul, who from this point forward will run point for their missionary team. Like John the Baptist in John chapter 3 Barnabas seems to say he must become greater and I must become less. He must increase and I must decrease. This is a pivotal moment in Paul's ministry. It seems clear that it wasn't a moment that John Mark cared for at all. And evidently, he had had enough. Luke doesn't really give us the the details of what happened. But he makes it clear in verse 13 here that John Mark left them to return to Jerusalem. So their little missionary team of three suddenly becomes a missionary team of two. John Mark hightails it out of there. He goes back home to Jerusalem. Now, over the years, Christians have speculated about why John Mark left Barnabas and Paul. There are all sorts of. Reasons That different Christians have suggested Some have said well he was a young man He was new in his faith He just got homesick He missed mommy So he went back to Jerusalem Because we know John Mark's mom uh, She opened up her house To hold Christian services For a lot of the Christians there in Jerusalem So he was close to mom in all likelihood And maybe he just wanted to go home to mommy It's a possibility Others say well no that's not it at all uh, possibly he just thought that it was getting a little too hot in the kitchen. It's, you know, something that he couldn't handle. It was getting too difficult. It's not what he had signed up for. It was getting to be way too hard. Well, that's a, a possibility as well. Maybe it was getting too difficult for him. His cousin Barnabas had convinced him to go. And he had these pie-in-the-sky ideas of how glorious it would be to go to Cyprus, his, his cousin's uh, homeland, and lead thousands of people to Christ and have all these people uh, just adoring them and, and thanking them for coming. And, and they'd get showered with praise and thanks. But he's weeks, if not several months, into this missionary journey and he's thinking, it's hard! It's really, really hard. I think this is most likely why he did leave. I do believe that for John Mark, it just was getting too hot in the kitchen. I want to show you what they did after they left this city of Perga. So they get to the mainland. They go a few miles inland to the city of Perga. And then we know their next stop is Pisidian Antioch up in the region of Galatia. And so the letter to the Galatians, Paul writes later in the New Testament, uh, that includes Pisidian Antioch. And so we know there are two likely routes that Paul and Barnabas took uh, when they went up to Pisidian Antioch. Uh, The normal route would be the one marked by the red line here. It was maybe 175 miles, and it was an important route called the Via Sebasti in those days. It was considered a paved road by Rome. Now, of course, they didn't have asphalt, but it was paved in the sense of being a somewhat smooth dirt and gravel road. But most of the time, people would take that with carts. It was a tough road on foot if you didn't have an animal pulling your cart or pulling you because there was a 3,500-foot elevation gain to go over the mountains to get over the Pisidian Range to Pisidian Antioch. And so you could think of it as starting down in Ontario and having to walk by foot up the Cajon Pass without the benefit of any asphalt road. This was not an easy path. Also, it was considered one of the most dangerous roads in the Roman Empire. There were bandits all over the place. And if you were on foot and didn't have a big caravan with you, you'd be a sitting duck for robbers and bandits. Some think they took the more direct route due north, which was following the the river valley there. But they still had to hoof it over 3,500 foot cliffs. And when they did that, there wasn't a paved road. And so either way, John Mark may have looked at the road ahead and said, you know what? That's just nuts. I didn't sign up for this. It's too hard. It's too hard. Well, notice what Paul wrote several years later to the churches in Galatia. In Galatians 4.13, Paul wrote, as you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you there in Galatia. That's a very telling verse. He doesn't give us any more details, but it's clear the Galatians understood exactly what he was talking about. So we've tried to speculate and and, and guess by putting the pieces together what was going on before Paul and Barnabas went to Galatia. Well, either on the island of Cyprus or on his 200 mile voyage to Perga in Pamphylia, Paul evidently had contracted a life-threatening illness of some sort. Many believe it was malaria. And so by the time he gets to the mainland there, he's suffering from malaria or some other terrible illness. And he learned that sometimes an illness like this fares better at a higher elevation. So it seems that Paul and Barnabas changed their initial plans, which probably was to stay close to the coast, It seems they changed their plans and headed a hundred or so miles inland to Pisidian Antioch, killing two birds with one stone. For starters, it would get Paul at a higher elevation where he could breathe easier and hopefully get over this illness, whatever it was. But more importantly, it would allow them to spread the gospel into territories where the gospel had never been taken up to that point. And so that's what Paul and Barnabas decided to do. They make this decision to head north, and John Mark must have protested. He thought it was insane. I imagine him saying something like this, Paul, you need to call it off. You need to stop this. you got to cut it off right now. This is crazy. It's crazy. You need to go back home. You need to rest. You're going to kill yourself, and I'm not going to be a part of it. If you're not leaving with me, I'm leaving by myself. You guys are nuts. I want nothing to do with it. I wash my hands of all that you're doing. And he turns and he goes home. Well, it took him many years to get back into Paul's good graces. But I'm so thankful that we read later in the New Testament. By the time Paul was nearing the end of his life, he considered John Mark to be one of his most faithful, most helpful workers with him. And so John Mark He matured a lot in the years that followed. He went on to write the second book of the New Testament, the gospel according to Mark. He went on to be one of Paul's greatest helpers. But at this point in time, it was getting too hot in the kitchen for young John Mark. Hmm. Well, Paul and Barnabas would soon prove time and time again that as hard as ministry got, if God was in it, it was worth every bit of blood, sweat and tears that they poured into it. I want to share with you two life lessons that I believe we can pull from this study today. Both of these are very important. Normally I like to give more than two, but these are just so important I just want to focus on on these two. Life lesson number 1. Our culture desperately needs to hear you and me speak and live out God's word with boldness and conviction. I don't want you to miss how Paul preached here in Acts chapter 13. He preached with power and conviction, did he not? Absolutely, he did. It didn't matter if he was preaching to Jews in a synagogue on Happy Island or if he was confronting a a Jewish pagan sorcerer. It didn't matter where he was, to who he was speaking, he preached and spoke the word of God with with power, with boldness, and with conviction. And sadly, in our day, there are far too few Christians who do that. Truth be told, in America these days, there are far too few pastors who do that. This past week, I came across these words from Pastor Stephen Larson excuse them, excuse me uh, Stephen Lawson that I found to be really really insightful and. I want you to listen to what he says about the preaching in particular in America these days and see if you agree with his words. He writes, much of evangelical preaching has become strangely impotent and sadly, too few realize it like Samson, from whom the spirit departed without him even knowing it. Many pastors seem to have little awareness that God's power has vanished from their once dynamic pulpits. Rather than preaching with renewed fervor, they are preoccupied with pouring their energies into secondary strategies, such as pursuing the latest church growth programs, alternative worship styles, corporate marketing strategies to build their churches. While some of these augmentations may have a place in the church, the crying need of the hour is for divine power to be restored to evangelical pulpits. At the heart of this crisis is a lost confidence in God's power to use his word. While many hold to the inerrancy of Scripture, some pastors do not seem convinced of its sufficiency when preached to bring about God's desired results. They reason that biblical preaching is outdated, archaic, Irrelevant In some churches, drama, dialogue, and film clips are taking the place of solid biblical exposition. Expository preaching should never take a back seat to these secondary means of communication. And to that I say, Amen. Amen. I would just add this one small addendum to what he said. What is true of pastors is equally true of the Christians who sit under the teaching of their pastors. No doubt we need divine power to be restored to pulpits across America. But we also need divine power to be restored to Christian lives across America. God expects you to speak and live out his word with boldness and conviction. Amen. Life lesson number two. Good, life-changing ministry is rarely easy. Most often, it's really, really hard. Chuck Swindoll, I think, says it so well. He writes, Authentic ministry is not for the faint-hearted or the phony. There's no promise of a life of ease and fame and kid-glove treatment. Most ministers of the gospel enjoy a 30 to 40, sometimes 50 year run before it ends in little more than a cake and punch reception to honor their lifetime achievements. No fanfare, no striking up the band, no glamorous award galas along the way to spur weary servants on to greater works. Truth be told, it is mostly a mixture of dreams mixed with reality, joy and heartache. I agree. Uh, Believe me when I say doing good ministry is an absolute thrill. Make no mistake about it. It is a joy and a thrill to do good ministry. It is awesome to see people come and get saved. It's wonderful when a number of people decide to get saved and get baptized on the same day. And I, I love to see the water from the baptistry pouring down the steps like a waterfall. That's an amazing sight to see. It's awesome when you see broken marriages restored by the power of the gospel. It's awesome to see people turn from from some of the most wicked uh, ways and wicked sins and and turn and repent and accept Jesus Christ. It's powerful to see uh, new Christians, baby Christians, mature in their faith and develop in their character following Christ. It's, It's a beautiful, powerful thing. But at the same time, make no mistake about it, doing good ministry... It's fun, but it's exhausting. It's a, it's a blast, but at the same time, there are moments when it will break your heart. It will. Doing good ministry is hard. If you pour yourself into ministry, the ministry God has given you, it will require your blood, sweat, and tears. And there will be times when you feel like you have nothing left to give. Like Mark, you'll find yourself saying, this is so much harder than I expected. This isn't what I signed up for. It's not worth it. I'm tired and I'm just going to go home. Sometimes we feel like that. When those times come, remember this life lesson. Good ministry is almost always hard. If anyone promised you that ministry would be easy, I've got news for you. They lied to you. (laughs) Because good ministry is not easy the best kind of ministry is always hard you see it always pays off though in the end it's always worth the effort you remember what paul wrote at the end of first corinthians chapter 15 as he's talking about heaven and how we'll be given glorious new bodies and how uh, we will be raised imperishable and death has been swallowed up in victory. And he says, where, O death, is thy victory? Where, O death, is thy sting? He ends the chapter by saying this, he writes, therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know, and say it with me, that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. I'm honest with you this morning. Good ministry is hard. And it requires your blood, sweat, and tears. But I guarantee you, every ounce of blood, sweat, and tears you pour into ministry is so worth it. Jesus Christ will make sure that nothing goes without His purposes being carried out as it's done for His glory and honor. Oh, wonderful James Gilmore. By the end of his life, he may not have seen all the results in Mongolia and China that he had hoped for, but he saw lives transformed by the power of the Gospel. And from heaven's perspective, he's able to see today that he paved the way For other missionaries to come in behind him and change those countries for Jesus Christ. Oh, don't be discouraged if it doesn't pan out in your ministry like you had dreamed. God is at work. Stay faithful. Do good ministry. And God will make sure that all of your labors in the Lord are never in vain. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you. For making sure that everything we do for you is never unnoticed, is never for nothing, is never useless, is never a waste. Even a small cup of cold water given to a child in Jesus' name brings reward and brings blessing. So, Lord, I pray for all of us as a part of Impact Christian Church that we would support each other in preaching the unadulterated, true, convicting, powerful, politically incorrect gospel of Jesus Christ. And I pray that we would encourage and exhort each other to stand firmly on the word of God, to never water it down, to speak the truth in love whether we're in one-on-one conversations at home with our family members, at work with our co-workers, or talking to our neighbor next door, may we speak the truth. Unadulterated. Not watered down. Not aiming to tickle ears that are itching to hear something that's politically correct. Lord, help us to stand on the truth and help us to boldly and with conviction speak Your truth. No matter how hard it gets, no matter how difficult it is, help us to persevere just like Paul and Barnabas. And there they were cresting a thirty five hundred foot mountain without their buddy to help carry their luggage with Paul sick. They did it anyway because they were convinced that their labor in the Lord was not in vain. And we know they were right. Lord, help us to follow in their footsteps as they followed in the footsteps of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. God's word is so good. It's so enriching and just so glad you joined us today. Remember, if you have never accepted Christ, the Bible is very clear. Today is the day of salvation. Don't drag your feet. We like to share here at Impact the ABCs. If you know that Jesus is your only way to be forgiven, your only way to make it to heaven, your only way to have a relationship with God, if you understand He died on the cross for your sins, then A, admit that you are a sinner and that you need the Savior Jesus Christ. B, believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and confess Him as your Savior and Lord. And C, Choose to begin following Jesus Christ today, to put him in the driver's seat of your life, to obey him, to trust him, to love him with all your heart until he calls you home to heaven. If you made that decision to choose Jesus today, please reach out to us. Call us at the church at 760-246-4100 or you can reach out to us by emailing us at info at greaterimpact.com. However you choose to reach out, please let us know if you've decided to accept Christ today. And we'd love to talk with you, to pray with you, and set up a time for you to be baptized. A time for you to let God, the angels, and anyone else know that you are serious about this decision to follow Jesus Christ. God bless you as you serve and love our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. If you've chosen to take communion with us, we'll do that in just a moment. But for those of you who are signing off, I just want to say God bless you as you walk in obedience to God's commands, as you boldly and passionately stand on the truth of his word. When you do that, just always remember it's never in vain. God bless you.